while doing some uh, research on this sermon, I came across a, uh, an interrogation technique that researchers will use to sort of uh, get to the root cause of something, the real cause and effect uh, source of any life issue. And they call it the five whys technique. Uh, the idea being that it takes five why questions uh, to really get to the root of a problem. Uh, take a broken car, for instance. You have a problem, and that is that the vehicle will not start. Well, why? Well, because the battery is dead. Well, why? Because the alternator's not functioning. Why? Well, because the alternator belt is broken. Why? Well, because the alternator belt was well beyond its useful service and not replaced. Why? Well, because the vehicle was not maintained according to the recommended service schedule. Hence, the root of the problem, they say. (laughs) Well, since we've been focusing this entire year on this question of why Jesus would have been compelling enough to have been convincing for this original audience to give their life to him, it kind of begs a question. Why is it that some people don't find Jesus compelling? Um, for a religious person, a Christian, you know, the, that was a, presents a problem. And we could use the five whys, couldn't we? You know, people don't find Jesus compelling is the problem. Why? Well, because they reject his teachings. Why? Well, because they find his message unsatisfying. Why? Well, because they don't see their need for any kind of salvation. Why? Because they don't think they have a problem at all. Why? And the answer the Bible gives us in our passage is because they are deceived, self-deceived even. And I would submit to you that there really is no other parable in Luke that answers the question about why people don't respond to Jesus' message with enthusiasm more than our passage. Um, Because here we discover sort of the underlying cause of our lack of certainty about the truth of what Jesus came to bring to us. So remember, Jesus' guns are still trained on the religious leaders of his day, his chief antagonists. In verse 14, you find that they were ridiculing Jesus because, in Luke's word, they were lovers of money. So Jesus takes them and places them in the character of a rich man in this parable in order to implicate them. And of course, he dies and experiences eternal judgment. But in so doing, you begin to see that Jesus is, is giving a scathing rebuke to these people. Uh, Something that goes way beyond even just how they spend their money, I think you'll find. So three things that we see from this rich man's life that'll help us unpack what Jesus is trying to say to these religious rulers. We need to look at the rich man's lifestyle. We need to look at his destiny. And then finally, his solution. So his lifestyle, his destiny, and his solution. First thing, why is it the rich man makes it where he makes it? Well, very simply stated, the rich man makes it to hell because he ignored the poor. Full stop. And Lazarus, especially at his gate. And I realize that's an abrupt way to put it. But if you've been following for any length of time in the gospel of Luke, it shouldn't surprise you. Because throughout the entire thing, Jesus's ministry is presented to us as being especially focused on those who experience spiritual and physical poverty. Of course, Luke was so struck by these stories that he packed his gospel with it. But of course, what's not so apparent, though, is why he does that. What is it that's going on in the heart of a rich person that makes them avoid, ignore, maybe even reject the most vulnerable people in their own population, the people whom God calls him to serve? 
Well, most commentators point out just how weird it is that actually uh, an individual gets names in this parable. In no other parable that Jesus tells does someone get a name. But of course we find out that Lazarus isn't, is a real person. The name Lazarus turns out it means God is our help. The rich man, on the other hand, is just rich man. What's the point? Well, you'll remember that, that in an ancient Near Eastern culture of Jesus' day, your name was far more than just that, um, that designation that helped distinguish you from the other humans around you. A name was far more. It was, it was the sum of your reputation. It was your public self. That's the reason why Proverbs will say uh, that a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. What's it saying? It means whatever you have built your life upon, the sum of your life, is, great, is greatly to be valued. A good name. And of course, people, when they interacted with Lazarus, what they got from him was this idea that God is my help. That hits Jesus' choice of the name. But for a rich man, it's just rich man, of course. Meaning what? Well, it means that the rich man had built his life upon his wealth, upon a sense of status that it gave him. Now, mind you, I don't think that the problem was the fact that the man had money. The Bible, I don't think, teaches justification by poverty alone. Um, but, he, but what happened was, is that his money became his identity. It became what his desire was for in everything that he did. It was the way in which he, he separated himself from sort of the ugly masses. Sense of status and accomplishment ended up coming from the fact that he had amassed what he had. But what's fascinating about this is, is in the midst of his accumulation of wealth and faring sumptuously every day, he, he, he fully misses a beggar that is like well within his own sphere of influence. He's not a beggar who's, you know, in the deepest, darkest of Africa or, you know, downtown, you know, in the, in the bad part of town. He's at his, in his front yard trying to get a share of the garbage that's being taken out. His, his only friends are the dogs, for Pete's sakes. You begin to realize that the rich man really has to go out of his way in order to avoid getting in contact with someone who might have asked something from him. He's in absolute close proximity. And so you already get to see, I think, this hint that inside the rich man is an almost willful blindness to what's going on around him and what God might have called him to see. It doesn't seem like he can't see, but it seems like he won't see what's right in front of him. Again, I was poking around with that little phrase, willful blindness, and was delighted to discover uh, that there's actually a legal term. Now, lawyers, bear with me. It's always, it's always entertaining when preacher types like to act like they know the law. But I'm going to do it right now. Willful blindness, I discovered, apparently was a term that arose in the drug trafficking trade. Uh, that apparently, these, uh, uh, in a number of cases, persons were transporting packages of illegal substances across uh, state lines. But when they were arrested for their offense... Their claim was that they simply didn't ask what was in the packages. But the courts, of course, ended up ruling against them because they developed a description of someone who should have known what was in the packages and should have known that they were transporting something across lines and that they were criminally reckless for not having found out. You know, you can almost hear Lazarus being, or the rich man getting to heaven and being like, Lazarus? Lazarus who? Is that a guy? Is that a name of somebody? Maybe there's been a mistake. You don't know who you're talking about. He could get away with it, of course, in his life. But after he and Lazarus die, all of his lies are exposed. 
The point is this, that tendency to lock on to, to something that sort of gives you a measure of status, especially money, is a capacity that's operational in every single one of us. But what we don't often think about is, is our lifestyle is, as it were, a discharge of whatever we've built ourselves upon. You always do whatever it is that you love. And that lifestyle for the rich man was reflected back on him as a lack of justice. A lack of care for the people that God says are the people I want you to care for. In other words, there was willful ignorance going on in the life of this rich man. Why? Because a life that is built on a money ends up being a death to all of those around you and to you yourself. And so Jesus in this first point is like holding up a mirror to rich men everywhere and saying to themselves, look, do you see what's coming out of you in the world around you? So we see the rich man's lifestyle. Secondly, notice though the rich man's destiny. Well, he lands in hell or in Hades. And I realized that like, as soon as you venture into the topic of, of, of eternal damnation, you begin to have to deal with a lot of the sort of uh, cultural accoutrements that have gotten attached to our imaginations about that. But I do think for most of us, we have this image of, of people sort of burning in a place and sort of begging God to get out and God sort of laughs and sort of shuts down the lid and walks away from the idea That's not exactly the image that we get, though, of the Bible here. And you notice it through a couple of things about the rich man. The first one is this. Even in hell, he still is ordering Lazarus around. (laughs) You know, send Lazarus to dip his finger in some water and cool my tongue. I mean, even in the midst of his own punishment, he still sees people as existing to serve him. But, you know, secondly, (laughs) when he asked Father Abraham to send Lazarus to his brothers... He's told that his brothers are actually just fine because they have all they need. More on that in just a second. But he insists at that point that it's actually not his brother's fault. It's not their fault that they haven't responded to to this. It's that they don't have enough information. In other words, God, you have left something out. This is on you. My brothers need something that you have not been willing or maybe able to give to them. In other words, it's your fault, God. When I, when I started to think about this, I realized that like, this form of objection still exists in so many quarters today. Um, years ago, uh, my wife and I were flipping through ch- stations, and we landed on a documentary that was about Christianity, which as a minister you're morally obligated to do whenever you're channel surfing. Oh, Christianity, we should look at this. But I remember it stopped on this, um, this interview with, with a self-professed atheist. And the interview was asking him to say, Let's say for the sake of discussion that you're wrong. Let's say there is a God and you've lived your life of this. There's not one from the very beginning. What are you going to say to God if one day you're standing before him and you were wrong? And the atheist, he didn't miss a beat. He said, oh, I'll simply look at him and say, well, you didn't give me enough evidence to believe in you. And it made me remember one of my very first early conversations with a young student who was in my ministry when, when we were in Memphis doing RUF. And when sitting down with him, this guy was sort of a self-professed agnostic. He had read a philosophy book or two his senior year in high school, so he wanted to talk about it. But I do remember his question, the way he phrased it, because he said, Les, all I want to know is, why is it that God is hiding? I mean, if he wants for people to believe in him so badly, like why all the cloak and dagger? Why all the invisibility, you know? 
But why is he making it so difficult? Now look, how I answered at that moment was actually not very good. It's another sermon illustration. But regardless, notice what's underneath that objection. It's not my fault. (laughs) He's the one who's not revealed himself clearly enough to me. Now look, my point is though, and remember, small little asterisk, it's easy to look and be like, oh, those atheists out there. If you were listening last week, there's a religious version of this as well. Remember the older brother from the prodigal son story last week, who was amassing as many good deeds as he possibly could? To do what? To force his father's hand and say, you owe me. It's one of the reasons why I think when all of a sudden well-meaning religious people find themselves in the midst of suffering, They drop God like a bad habit because this was not the life that I was wanting. (laughs) In the end, it wasn't service to him that I was doing. It It was what I could get out of it. And so Jesus rightly is trying to implicate these things for both of these. So look, but what does this have to do with eternal punishment? Well, I think Jesus is giving us a picture of people who are in hell, but who are there because they really wouldn't have it any other way. That's what they long for. And you really can't talk about this without referring to um, a little book written by C.S. Lewis called The, um, uh, uh, the Great Divorce. It's a fascinating book. It's about a group of people, uh, a, a group of people who are in hell who take a bus ride to heaven. And while they're there, the people of heaven try to talk them out of, of uh, going back and staying in heaven. But here's the crazy thing. They won't do it. <laughs> they, they still persist in where they are. And what Lewis is basically saying is, he's like, look, hell is simply nothing more than what you get. Then when you have things that maybe to to your temporal mind look kind of smallish, but as you extend that out over time, they become truly wicked. You you might notice something in in lostness that's maybe a simple peevishness or or a pettiness in somebody. But if you extend that out over eons and eons, Lewis is saying, you'll wind up with something quite hellish. In other words, people who are in hell are not there because they don't want to be. They're there because they're still demanding that the world serve them. Send Lazarus. If you just did enough, it still is about them. It's the only way they would have it. There's a self-delusion in their failing to acknowledge God's commands. So that's the reason for their destiny. We see see their lifestyle. Secondly, we see their destiny. But I'm going to camp out for a second on the rich man's solution to this problem. Because I think you start to see that this is a fairly confrontational parable, I think. And and the way I used to love to introduce this to, to college students was by asking them a theoretical question. If this morning, let's say for the sake of illustration, I told you that I was going to grant to every person in this congregation anything that you want some kind of singular condition that as long as you saw it or experienced it or went through it, on the other side of it, you would never doubt God ever again. The reality of his word, the truth of his existence, whatever, you can have anything that you want. I've been given magical powers to do so this morning. So what would you ask for? This was my first question. There's some graduates of my freshman Bible study here at Old Miss, even in the room now. I love to ask this question at freshman Bible study for about 20 years of campus ministry. And it was amazing the responses that I would get back. You know, very typically, there was someone in the crowd who would say, you know what, if I could see a straight up miracle, you know, uh, and it wasn't always magic tricks they wanted. Some people would very heartbreakingly say, if God would cure 
my loved one of cancer. And I feel like I would never doubt again. Other college students were a little more creative by the whole exercise. They're like, you know what? I want a time machine. I want to go back in time. I want to stand right there in front of the, the Jesus tomb. I want to see the angel roll the stone back. And I want to see Jesus get reanimated and go back to his father. I want to see all that. <laughs> One time there was, a, there was a woman who looked at me and she goes, I want video. And I said, video? She goes, yes, I want video of the creation. And I was like, this guy wanted a time machine, but the video is what's going to be compelling for you, but whatever. <laughs> but the reason why I always resonated with the question was because I remember being a child and asking the exact question myself. No way I was more than, le- older than fourth or fifth grade. But you know that moment where you're thinking to yourself, I mean, how do I know that what I have embraced and come to believe is true and what other people say is wrong? And I began to pray for an angel. You know what I'm saying? And not a whole lot more earnest prayers did I ever pray than being like, God, it would not be too hard for you to have the angel just kind of show up, poof, you know, look at me and be like, Les, it's all true. And then poof, he could go back to doing whatever it was he was doing. It would not take that much time. Earnestly. So here's the point, you know, digging through that, that's exactly what the rich man is wanting. He's like, look, I know that whole Moses and the prophets thing, la, 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 la. But what, what would really be awesome is if Lazarus came back from the dead. Now, that would be some Steven Spielberg special effects there, right? Surely everybody's going to go get involved at that point. Of course, the implication is that, you know, God is still hiding from me. But here's what's make, what makes those responses really interesting. Because it's exactly the opposite of what the Bible says about what God is doing. I wonder how many of you remember Psalm 19 uh, in the Old Testament. That psalm that's about how God reveals himself. And it says he does it in two ways. The first half of the psalm talks about um, how God reveals himself in nature, or what we might call his nonverbal communication. The second half of the psalm talks about how he reveals himself in the word, right? Listen, Listen to how he talks, though, in the first four verses. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. (laughs) Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Do you see what the psalm is saying? It's saying, not only is God not hiding, He's actually made Himself obvious, clear, as plain as the nose on your face. There is a God. (laughs) Which begs another question, does it not? Because you start to think to yourself, okay, okay, okay. So wait, I don't think that God is always that obvious to me. What does that mean? Well, there's another answer to that question. In Romans chapter 1, where the apostle Paul starts to grapple this question. Listen to what he says. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, listen to this, suppress the truth. That word there, suppress, means to hold down. Like, like you would a squirmy animal or something. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. <laughs> I mean, look, you could almost... Um, it's hard to wrap your mind around what they're saying here because it's almost as if he's saying, if, if you don't hear God's voice singing to you all around you, it's not because he's not talking loudly enough. 
It's because I'm stopping my ears. I'm just not listening. Or to use his words, I'm willfully blind to what it is. It's not only not hiding, but it's obvious. This is a very confrontational passage here. Um, It kind of rattles you. But it finally brings us to the heart of our problem, doesn't it? Because the power of locking ourselves onto some joy or some relationship or pursuit or career or whatever is that it causes you to see the world only through those eyes. All of us, the Bible says, were born with God-filtering glasses on. We are bent on seeing the world as it really isn't. And frankly, it sort of makes us almost as if we're in kind of a pitiful estate. Jesus will use the phrase that we are sheep without a shepherd. You want to know why? Because it's not like the deception is coming from outside of us. Like if you lie to me, it's fairly easy to break that deception. Just tell the truth. But what happens when the lie comes from inside? What happens if it's a lie that I'm telling me? What do we do in that case? How can I break the deception of something that I have created? Well, I think the answer is simply this. The only way we can is that we need a word from the outside. There's got to be a word with power from the outside to speak true truth. (laughs) A weird phrase we've got to use in our day, right? Into our hearts so that the world can, so we can see the world as it really is. You know, Abraham gives the answer. They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. That little phrase stood for the Old Testament scriptures Moses, the first five books, the prophets, everything else. They had the Bible, Jesus said, and it's enough. You know, imagine that you asked, by the way, for the time machine. Remember the whole thing that I gave you? What do you want? What do you need to see to never doubt again? Time machine. I'm all down with that. Let's have that one. And I said, Do you know what? Instead of doing that, why don't you and I go to a Bible study? I dare say you would have been a little bit, uh, a little bit disappointed, wouldn't you have? Um, but Jesus is clear. If you don't hear from me in the Bible, you're not going to come to me, even if you witness a miracle firsthand. It won't be any more compelling to you because of these glasses that we have on. I often think about what would have happened if I actually got my angel. One thing that would have happened, this would have been a far more interesting sermon. And then one night one showed up. Didn't happen. I know what I would have done. The next morning I would have woken up and been like, was there an angel? Did I dream that last night? I would have immediately started doubting it. Of course I would have. And so I've gotten really fascinated as we finish here by this capacity for willful blindness in our fallen humanity. My guess is you, none of you really know the name of Gala Benefield. Uh, but Benefield worked for a while as, a, as an electric meter reader uh, in the town of Libby, Montana. And while she was reading meters and taking down the information, she began to notice and be shocked by just how many men in her community were living with oxygen masks. Well, after she lost her own mother and father in very close uh, time to a lung disease, she began to research the town's problem with a vermaculite mine in town, which of course was a substance found in insulation uh, that's an an especially dangerous form uh, of asbestos. And so Benefield starts to go after her research and only found that like, like, like the mortality rate inside Libby, Montana, was like 80 times what it was in the rest of the civilized world. Now you'd think what would follow would be this massive, expensive effort on the part of city leaders to sort of clear up the problem and stop the suffering. But what happened instead was, is people just didn't want to hear about it at all. Benefield said that she shouted from every media outlet that she could about what was going on. 
But the response from the citizens was constantly something like this. It was like, well, I mean, if it was that bad, like somebody would have told us. <laughs> that a hilarious response. The benefit was like, I'm the one telling you. <laughs> I'm telling you right now. Or they would say things like, you know, look, I'm not going to make myself out to be the victim here. Or they would say things like, well, you know, in any industry, there's got to be some kind of victims. And of course, she was incredulous. People were dying all around them because of their pride. It turns out that the people were more put off by the fact that she was a whistleblower to the institutions in her town than the fact that they were dying. You know, I mean, behold the power of human self-deception. But here's the point, though, and here's the positive side of it. If what Jesus and Father Abraham are saying is true, then reading and thinking through and meditating and talking about the Bible is the way in which we get that word from the outside. In other words, the most dangerous thing to your status quo of your life is to be where you are this morning, with the Bible open, in your hand, in your lap, wherever. Because only that has the power to break self-deception. Hebrews 4 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of whom we must give account. That's the only place we find reality is in the word of God, the reality that we really need. It's fascinating because it brings us sort of full circle back to Luke 1, where Luke is talking to Theophilus and he wants him to have what? Certainty about the things he's being taught. Well, how does Luke know he's going to have certainty? Because he's writing scripture. That's how he's going to come to his certainty. In other words, you don't have to breathe life into the Bible. The Bible comes with its own power built right in. It's just a fascinating thought to me that to sit in week in and week out, to maybe join a Bible study with a small group of other people to consider and read is one of the most subversive places you could possibly be to your life. And as it turns out, the most likely place to get certain. Why? Because of the Bible's chief topic. (laughs) Because the big point of the whole narrative is about the one who became the word incarnate. Who himself came to break the power of self-deception. Which helps us understand that last line when, Jesus, when Father Abraham says, you know, even if someone should rise from the dead, they won't believe if they don't hear Moses and the prophets. Well, who is Jesus talking about? He's talking about himself. I'm going to rise from the dead. And that event alone is not going to be what changes people. What's going to change people is the fact that they had a living encounter with me as I am presented in the scripture. Jesus is the consummate interpersonal whistleblower, blowing the whistle on all kinds of things in my heart about which I'm willfully blind. But there is good news though, and that is this, because whatever he reveals, he comes to heal. The things that he uncovers, he applies medicine to. He applies grace. The cross is the great reality check of history. Truth breaking into self-deceived people and bringing them home to where they belong by His Holy Spirit. So look in the end, and I would leave you with this. We're not really just objective observers, are we? We love to sort of consider ourselves being people like being like, very interesting. Let's hear this Christianity thing. I'll weigh it over and against my other life options and decide which is which. What if it's different? What if rather there is a cloud? I wonder if you could begin to doubt your doubts this morning. 
What if you could begin to question your questions this morning? And maybe somewhere in there, I, I, I missed this. But for those of you that are believing, something really exciting. And that is that like, we're here this morning as recipients. <laughs> we're beggars who found bread. We're paupers who found a bag of money. So in the end, that's the reason why we can respond. And in the end, it's why we can have certainty of the things that we've been taught. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as true as that sounds and rings true inside of our hearts, it doesn't feel that way this morning. It doesn't feel that way because of distraction, because of struggle, because of pain, things that we're going through that we don't even know how to talk to our friends about. It doesn't feel true. But we know that you want to appeal to our imagination. So maybe this morning you might give us a different look at ourselves to see us how you see us and to see your grace in the midst of it. Would you do that? But we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.